welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. Joining me today for the second part of our two-part series on the fight to release the ARCOS data is Washington Post reporter Scott Hyam. Scott is a Pulitzer Prize-winning member of the Investigations Unit of the Washington Post. Since joining the Post in 2000, he has examined conflicts of interest on Capitol Hill and causes behind the opioid epidemic, among many other projects. Today, we'll talk about the Washington Post's effort to get the Automation of Reports and Consolidated Orders System, or ARCOS, data released to the public. So, Scott, welcome. Thank you, Greg. Okay. So in July, the Arcos database, which was described in the post as a virtual roadmap to the opioid epidemic, it was finally released to the public, but not after a really long battle by both the post as well as the Charleston Gazette Mail. So let's start by talking about why the heck the DEA and industry didn't want it released and what it took to win that battle. This is a database that uh, very few people um, outside of the DEA industry knew even existed. It's information that's provided by uh, the drug industry uh, to the DEA. It tracks the sale of every single controlled substance in the United States. And we were particularly interested in the uh, transactions of oxycodone and hydrocodone. Uh, the two most widely abused um, uh, opioid pills in America. And so this database traces the path of those pills from the manufacturer down to the distributors and then down to the pharmacy level. And that's the supply chain um, in the United States. And so we really wanted to see, um, you know, how many pills were being manufactured by which companies, how many pills were being distributed by which companies, and and how many pills were being dispensed by which pharmacies in communities around the country. Um, and we first filed a freedom of information request for this information back in, um, in 2016. And the DEA denied that request, said that it was uh, business proprietary information, that it was law enforcement sensitive. They threw up lots of roadblocks uh, for us to get this and then uh, if you fast forward three years, you have you know more than 2,000 lawsuits that were pending all around the country. All those lawsuits were then consolidated into one massive uh, federal case that's uh, currently pending in Cleveland. The multi-district litigation, yep. Yes, exactly. And, uh, and the judge there, uh, at the request of the, the plaintiffs representing all those communities, um, ordered that the ARCOS database uh, be released, but under a protective order, which basically meant that it was going to be sealed um, outside the four corners of the courthouse. So the defendants uh, could see the data, um, uh, and not just their own data, which they obviously had access to, but they could see the data of the other companies. And the plaintiffs could see the data. 
And it was at that point uh, that the Washington Post and the Gazette Mail in, in West Virginia sued uh, as interveners in that lawsuit and said, well, look, wait a minute, this is a federal courthouse. You've now, um, you've now released this data to the parties in this lawsuit. Uh, there are also lots of exhibits and depositions that have been given in the course of this lawsuit and have been turned over. And those were also sealed. And so we, uh, we intervened and sued uh, for access to those documents on behalf of the public. And that was a, about a year ago. Um, and we won that lawsuit uh, uh, this summer. And uh, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals in uh, Cleveland ordered that that material be turned over to The Washington Post, to the Gazette Mail, and, and to the public at large. So in July, you got your first look at that data. What surprised you about that? I mean, the first thing that's surprising is just the, the sheer volume of pills. And, you know, we only got access to data from uh, 2006 through 2012. But that's a really uh, important time frame because that is the the, the height of the uh, the prescription drug epidemic. It actually started tailing off a little bit after 2012, 2013. So this uh, this data showed that 20 I'm sorry 76 billion uh, tablets of oxycodone and hydrocodone were uh, were shipped around the country uh, during those seven years. Um, and so that that number by itself was just a, a kind of a stunning figure to see. And then you see the the amount of drugs that were were being manufactured by which companies. And you would think that it would be Purdue Pharma. I think most people uh, think of Purdue Pharma when they think of of, of, of the manufacturing of of OxyContin um, uh, and other drugs, but it wasn't Purdue, uh, pharma that was the largest manufacturer. It was companies that most Americans had never heard of a company called Mallinckrodt, uh, and a subsidiary of Mallinckrodt called spec GX, uh, a company called activists, another company called par pharmaceuticals. There's another company called Tiva, another one endo. Uh, those were the major manufacturers of, of oxycodone and hydrocodone during that time frame. And then the other thing that really stood out were the the major distributors of these drugs. Um, and again, there 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 are some companies that most Americans have not heard of, like the McKesson Corporation, which is the not only the the first the, the top um, uh, drug distributor in the nation, but they're also the fifth largest company of all companies, publicly traded companies in the United States. Uh, Cardinal Health and Amerisource Bergen. And then there were some surprises. Um, you know, companies that are household names uh, uh, popped up on this list, Walgreens, CVS, and, and Walmart, um, because they dispensed uh, massive amounts of these drugs. And some of these companies also distributed to themselves. Uh, they were so big that they cut out the middleman. They had their own distribution network for, for narcotics. Um, so some of those are some of the big takeaways. And then, and then the others were, you know, where did all these pills go? Uh, you know, there were uh, there were states on this uh, that came out of the data that were not surprising. West Virginia, a lot of us, uh, you know, knew was very hard hit. But then there were places like Nevada, um, South Carolina, Tennessee, um, that were in the top five of states that were just saturated uh, with these pills. Yeah, I think we knew about West Virginia because that data had been released about a year earlier, just the Arcos data, just for West Virginia, through the work that the Gazette Mail had done prior to that. 
And so you had a sense for them being, you know, some egregious shipments happening there. And, and people like Mingo County, I know, just got inundated with, uh, with this stuff. But what, what became clear when you looked at your data after this July release across the country was there was pockets throughout the country that had dumping into them. Yeah, I mean, sadly, West Virginia was was not alone, and, and Mingo County, like you said, was a tiny little county, and millions of pills were shipped to that to that county. Um, and that that data came out in a state lawsuit, and and like you said, Greg, that was specific to the state of of West Virginia, um, and it was a, a shocking number back then. But it's you know it's dwarfed by the numbers that uh, that have come out since uh, as a result of the release of the entire Arcos database. And so you see, you know, communities in Virginia and Kentucky um, and in uh, in Nevada, South Carolina, North Carolina, uh, up through New England, um, where uh, communities were just completely inundated. I mean, and and then we compared, well, for instance, there's a little town called Norton City, Virginia, which is in the southern part of the state. And, and enough pills were shipped there during those seven years that it was enough to supply each man, woman, and child with 306 pills per person um, in this little tiny town. Uh, the same is true in a place called Martinsville City, Virginia, where it was 242 pills per person. Um, and so then the list goes on and on and on. And, and uh, our database editor, uh, Stephen Rich, took that Arcos data and then he overlaid on top of that the CDC mortality database. And you know, not surprisingly, but but sadly, in in all these communities that were were hardest hit with the numbers of pills, also suffered the highest death rates in the country. Um, and in in some places, that death rate was 18 times higher than the natural national average. Um, and much of that due to the opioid epidemic. So, the Arcos data tracks who's shipping to whom. And those shippers that are shipping out all these opioids over the last quarter of a century nearly that this opioid epidemic has been happening, they're supposed to track any suspicious orders and report them. And they're supposed to build systems that do that. And this data would seem to indicate that should alarm bells should have been going off like crazy. What happened? Why did that fail, that whole system that should have been in place? That's a good question, Greg, and, and that's the question that's at the heart of the lawsuit, uh, one of the key questions at the heart of the lawsuit. Um, you know, uh, this is supposed to be a, um, a tightly regulated, controlled um, system that you know begins with the manufacturer and it ends at the retail level with, with pharmacies. And, and these companies are supposed to police themselves. I mean, they are regulated by the DEA. But it, they've been on an honor system for a long time. And so under the law, if, if a suspicious order comes into a drug manufacturer or into a drug distributor um, and, uh, and that's a clear red flag, they're supposed to report that order to the DEA and, and not ship it if they can't resolve you know, the, the, the suspicious nature of that, of that order. For instance, if there's a, you know, if there's a pharmacy in, uh, in Florida that one month it orders 30,000 tablets of oxycodone and the next month orders 60 or 70 or 80,000. Well, what is the reason for that? Are there suddenly a lot more people in pain in that community? Um, the companies have a responsibility to do their due diligence and to examine that order and try to figure out 
why uh, the amount has increased so much or why the frequency has increased the way it's increasing before they ship it. And the allegation uh, that is at the center of this lawsuit is that many of these companies did not pay attention to these suspicious orders. Uh, they saw suspicious orders coming in and they filled them anyway. Uh, there's a lot of internal emails and memorandums that are coming out um, that are, uh, are highly damaging, I think, to some of these defendants uh, in this case. Um, and the, the Arcos data that is coming out uh, is also, um, you know, is, 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 is shocking because of the sheer volume. And I think this is one of the reasons why the defendants had fought so hard to keep this uh, secret and to keep it away from the public's view. So what should people take away from these reports? What do you think, if there's an uh, important lesson there, Scott, what, what do people need to pull away? Well, I mean, you know, there, there were failures up and down the, the line. And, and, you know, we looked at this uh, in terms of accountability. And I, and I think that that's what a lot of these communities are doing. They're, they're trying to hold somebody accountable for the damage that's been done to their communities. Um, and they're trying to hold the, the drug manufacturers and the distributors and the, um, the, the pharmacies accountable for what's happened in these communities. Um, the, the DEA and local law enforcement have been going after uh, doctors for many, many years because without doctors, uh, this epidemic would not have, uh, have, have started, particularly without doctors who were uh, either over-prescribing or corrupt doctors who were prescribing in exchange for for cash and sexual favors and other things that have this, all these things have come out in, in court records. Um, so, you know, up and down the line there, there have been failures. And I think that people in communities across the country, you know, where they have lost their sons and daughters and mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and family members want to know how this happened uh, and, and who should be held responsible. And I think for the first time, this data and the documents that are coming out are starting to shed light on that question. So there's still a lot of this picture that hasn't been released. So that would be the Arcos data from the years after 2012. So the 2013 through the 2017 at a minimum. I would think that they might even have 2018. So is there any thought or appetite to go after that? We are going after that. Um, what, what happened in this case is that the, uh, the DEA um, had said that it would compromise uh, current law enforcement operations uh, if later years were released. And the, and the companies argued that um, their competitive advantage would be harmed if this information became public. And so the judge, listening to those arguments, um, uh, you know, in, initially when, when all this stuff was still being sealed, uh, he decided to release it to the parties in the lawsuit, not to the public, but to the parties in the lawsuit, uh, 2012 through 2014. Um, and then when we intervened and sued and won, the judge decided to release 2006 through 2012. He carved off 2013 and 2014 um, out of an abundance of caution, um, uh, I think, because he wanted to, he wanted the information to be released, but he he was mindful of the arguments that the DEA and, and the industry was making. We, we uh, have objected to those arguments. We don't believe that information uh, that is uh, five years old uh, 
is going to harm any ongoing criminal investigation, or nor will it harm uh, the uh, the competitive advantage of any companies because the information is so old. We, you know, I think we understand that information from a year ago certainly could be law enforcement sensitive, but something from 2013 or 2014 or even 2015 or 2016, we believe that information should be released to the public and the public has a, a, a right to know what was happening during those years. So we are still fighting for that information. Well, that's good to hear. So when the drug companies are, are uh, called on the carpet for shipping these massive amounts of drugs into communities across the country, they oftentimes will put up the argument that annual quotas are really supplied by the DEA. And that's their defense. Speak to that. That's one of their defenses. Um, um, and it is true that the DEA does set the quotas for these drugs, and it's based on prescriptions and, and other metrics that are coming in. So the DEA sees all these prescriptions. And I think after after a while, the DEA started to realize that um, that there was so much, in, in their parlance, diversion of these drugs going to the streets that they have finally started to reduce the um, the supply of uh, the raw material for these drugs. Um, the, the, the defendants have raised a, a number of, of defenses. Uh, that, is, that is one of them. Another defense is that uh, these drugs were being prescribed by doctors uh, in, as part of their practice, uh, that people were abusing these drugs, and that's on them, and that's not on, on the companies. Um, and they also argue that the DEA had access to this Arcos data. It was their database, and why didn't the DEA do more? So these are the arguments uh, that they've been raising, and and this case is uh, scheduled to go to trial on October 21st. And I would imagine if it does go to trial, you're going to you're going to hear a lot of those arguments being made uh, either before the judge or the jury. It hasn't been determined yet whether a jury will sit uh, in in, uh, in on this case or if the judge will just decide. But uh, there's there's there are a lot of uh, defenses that the, that the companies have raised, um, and uh, you know the plaintiffs have pushed back on a lot of those defenses, and it's going to be uh, it's going to be a pretty epic court battle. And it seems as though one of the difficult parts of this is there's so many uh, different parties to lay blame on. Um, so not only is it so many different bad actors within the pharmaceutical industry, but you've got Government entities, the FDA, the DEA, there's some culpability there, isn't there? No, absolutely. I mean, you know, the FDA uh, um, approved these drugs um, and, and approved them for uses that now looking back um, um, might not have been the wisest uh, choice. There have been allegations of conflicts of interest. Uh, and then at the at the DEA, um, you know, the, the division that uh, oversees pharmaceuticals is called the Division of Diversion Control. Is is and has been seen as a backwater at, by the higher ups at DEA. Was never really given a lot of resources. Was never really given, uh, you know, a, a, a lot of money, a lot of uh, uh, um, uh, investigators, um, and 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 a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of the, the people who were in that division are super hardworking and really tried to go after um, these companies, but. They just, you know, they're just completely overwhelmed and overmatched by by the industry. It takes, you know, sometimes it could take six months to a year to do one single uh, diversion case. And so when you when you have a limited number of investigators and agents, it's almost an impossible task. And and a lot of those men and women in that division 
uh, have said publicly that they felt that they were not uh, supported by the higher ups within the DEA. It was not a priority for them, and nor were they uh, supported by the Department of Justice, which oversees the DEA. In fact, that they felt like their mission was being undercut uh, by uh, the higher ups within the Justice Department and the DEA. So. Yeah, there's, there's blame to go around, that's for sure. So circling back to the data for a minute, um, it's really an incredible job that Stephen Rich did with that database, making it so accessible to be able to slice it and dice it and break it down to your community um, in, in terms of what was shipped in your, all the way down to your zip code. Comment on that and the effort. I mean, it seems like an overwhelming effort, but he turned it around in no time at all. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. And, and, and you know, it, it, be, behind all of us, there's, you know, a, a, a great team. And so it was Stephen Rich and, and Aaron Williams and Andrew, Andrew Tron. We have three database um, experts on our staff, and they worked uh, around the clock um, to try to get this information into the hands of the public uh, as quickly as possible. And I, it was a lot of sleepless nights. It was. It was. Uh, it, it, I think it reminded us all of being back in college. You know, being you know working at the school newspaper, or you know being on deadline for midterms or finals. Uh, uh, there was a, a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of long days, a lot of weekends. Um, and uh, and so uh, Stephen and Aaron and Andrew did just a, a fabulous job. And you know, for your listeners, you can go online now and you can put in. You know your uh, location, your city, your town, your community, and uh, and uh, it will tell you exactly how many pills um, were sent to your community, uh, who they were manufactured by, who distributed them, and who dispensed them. And it it's it, it's an amazing tool, and we've made it uh, accessible to anybody. You don't have to pay, um, you know, uh, to to take a look at this uh, information. We really feel that this is. This is information that belongs to the public, and uh, and that we 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 we're mindful of the fact that there are a lot of people in a lot of communities who cannot afford a subscription to the Washington Post. So we took down our paywall, um, so uh, so readers across the country can get access to this material. So Scott, to get to that, they type in what? If you type in just the opioid files in 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 Google or any other um, search engine, it should come right up. Or Washington Post opioid files. Well, if you go onto the to the opioid files page, you also see all of the coverage uh, that the Washington Post has been doing for the last three years. All the major stories are there, and then there's also we're starting to put up a lot of the documents that are being unsealed in that case in Cleveland. Uh, emails memorandums, uh, excerpts from uh, depositions so people can see for themselves uh, what's happening in that court case and uh, what the companies knew, when they knew it, uh, who knew what. It's a, it's a treasure trove of information for anybody who wants to fully understand uh, what's happened in, in the opioid epidemic. And that's an ongoing process that's updated daily, isn't it? Exactly, yes. And, um, you know, we're hoping to get... Uh, the other years of the Arcos database, and once we get that, it will be updated, and we're updating it as we speak, um, as more more documents are being unsealed, uh, as we publish more stories about what those documents are, are showing us, um, we're making them public. Um, and then <clears throat> all these documents, as they get unsealed, are being uh, made public on, on the federal uh, court website, 
um, which is called PACER, P-A-C-E-R. Um, but you need to sign up for that, and that, that costs uh, that costs a fair amount of money to download documents um, from from that federal website. So um, we're trying to put up as many documents as 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 we can. We don't want to overload uh, people, but we're putting up some of the documents that we feel um, are the salient, you know, key uh, pieces of information that people may want to read. Now I want to pivot to one of the recurring themes throughout this opioid epidemic and the last 25 years, and that is the revolving door and the role that that's played in the epidemic. Scott, can you can you speak to that? Well, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about before, Greg, where uh, a lot of the men and women in that uh, diversion division really felt like they were being hamstrung by the Justice Department and the higher levels of the DEA. Um, and they felt that a, a lot of that was because there was a coziness between the regulator, the, the DEA and the Justice Department, and the companies that they regulated, um, and that they were they were a little bit too close for comfort. Um, in fact, so close that they felt that the companies were um, being a, either let off the hook or um, or being fined um, uh, uh, in dollar amounts that were not really significant or uh, impactful for these companies, that potential uh, criminal cases weren't being brought um, because of the closeness between uh, the industry and, uh, and the regulators. And you know, just as an example, you know, we, we took a look at, um, at the DEA, Diversion Control Division, and other key um, people who used to work at the DEA and found that dozens and dozens and dozens of them have over the you know the past years gone over to the industry um, in very key positions. And so these are men and women who are uh, highly trained um, in a very specific area of, of, uh, of drug enforcement, and that's drug diversion. Uh, it's kind of an esoteric uh, part of the DEA uh, and a part of the DEA law, um, the Controlled Substance Act. And so, you know, the these these men and women work for for years uh, getting this experience, and then they take that experience uh, and they go to the other side and use that uh, as a way to defend the companies against the enforcement operations of the DEA, uh, and that's been very very frustrating. Uh, and there's also uh, you know a, a subtlety to the revolving door, and this is not just at the DEA or the Justice Department, but across the federal government, where a company. You know, we'll come in and they'll say to a, say a lawyer at the DEA, you know, you know, you're you're a bright young man, and we think you have a, a great future in our company one day. Um, and you know, not that we're offering you a job because that would be inappropriate. We would never talk to you about that until you know it was time for you to leave. But you know, you you've got a potential uh, in, in you know, future with our company. Oh, and by the way. You know, we're trying to get, you know, this regulation changed or there's a case that's pending right now. Could you tell us a little bit more about what's going on? And so they insert themselves in these ways where, you know, it's like with a wink and a nod. And uh, the, the people who this happens on Capitol Hill, too, all the time with these young young staffers who are not making a lot of money. Um, and they see that, you know, one day maybe they can take the experience that they've gotten in, at this federal agency where they're making $100,000 a year or $125,000 a year or on Capitol Hill where they're making even less and parlay that into a job working for uh, the industry, whether it's the drug industry, the telecom industry, uh, name it. 
where they could, you know, triple, quadruple their salary, sometimes make even more just by crossing over to the other side. And so it happens with a, a great deal of frequency in Washington. Um, and it, it happened with a great deal of frequency at the DEA and at the uh, Department of Justice and continues to this day. There's a, a, a large number of former DEA officials, many of them high ranking, who are now expert witnesses for the defense in this case that's going forward in Cleveland. And the situation that you described there is uh, right at the center of the industry's ability to lobby and successfully take away the immediate suspension orders from the DEA and diversion control, isn't it? With Lyndon Barber. Yeah, so we just uh, published another uh, a rather lengthy story about this, and, and a lot of this was based upon the exhibits that are being unsealed in Cleveland, uh, internal emails and memorandum. Um, just, just by way of background, uh, for many, many years, the DEA's most powerful enforcement weapon was called the immediate suspension order. And, uh, and, and if a company was seen to be um, spilling drugs into the street and causing a quote-unquote imminent threat to the community, the DEA could move in and shut down that operation immediately. And it was, it was a very costly um, uh, uh, venture for a company to have their operation shut down. And the DEA used this weapon a, a number of times, and, and the industry uh, was getting really fed up with, with the number of enforcement actions that were being taken against them. And so they just went and got the law changed um, and they got the, the word immediate swapped out. I mean, immediate swapped out for immediate. And it's very hard uh, to show um, that a drug manufacturer in upstate New York or, uh, you, know, you know, in Ohio was causing an immediate danger to a community in Florida or Tennessee. It was much easier to show that they were causing an imminent danger to that community. But to show something that's immediate, it's almost impossible. So it, it wound up taking a weapon out of the hand of the, uh, out of the DEA. And, and these emails show, you know, the, the, how that operation worked and how the industry hired lobbyists uh, who then created uh, uh, questions for members of Congress to ask, drafted members of Congress to be on their side to get the law changed. Uh, it took them three times uh, to change the law and they finally did it. It also shows the amount of money that was given to, to these politicians. Uh, so it really pulls back the curtain on how Washington works and uh, how laws can get changed, uh, sometimes to the, to the detriment of, of, uh, of the federal government. If your listeners go to the opioid files, you'll, you'll see that it's the, it's the last major uh, investigation. Well, I want to thank you, Scott. This is uh, really enlightening. Any final words that uh, you'd like to share with our listeners and uh, final comments about what they should take away, what you'd like them to take away from this podcast? Well, I, you know, I, I, we're, we're trying to, you know, in, empower the public with information that, um, that we've long believed is a public record. Uh, you know, what happened uh, during this epidemic and uh, who did what and what people knew and when they knew it within the industry, within the DEA, within the Department of Justice. And, uh, you know, I would just encourage your readers, if they're, uh, they're interested in knowing more about this epidemic, to go to the website, uh, to take a look at the data, 
take a look at the documents um, and make up their own minds about, you know, who they think should be held responsible for this epidemic. It's, uh, it's pretty enlightening information and, uh, and also to stay tuned because a lot more is going to be coming out. We've been joined today by Washington Post investigative reporter Scott Hyam. Scott has covered the opioid epidemic extensively, and today he shared with us his insights into the battle for the release of the ARCOS data and what it revealed to the public. For more Washington Post coverage of this story, simply Google the words, the opioid files. Also, tune in next time when we'll revisit a story we did last year, taking another look at the drug industry's plan to defeat the DEA. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. For the latest on community events and our podcast series, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Cover 2 Resources. That's cover and the number two and resources. As always, thank you for listening to this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.